1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
2: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. I would
3: not put it past Corey to blow me up on live TV just for the ratings.
1: So yeah, but catch. then what would we do for Sweeps Week, you know? Mm. <laughs>
4: Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy.
1: And I'm Hilary Busis. Today we are doing a special one-off episode about the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. I had to actually cut together my own obit package. Literally,
3: your whole life cut down to 90 seconds to a Beach Boys cover.
1: They won't pay for an original Beach Boys song? No. We're in the third season of the Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon fronted show, and we've got an interview with two producers who have been there since the beginning. We'll be covering what happened in the first four episodes. But in
4: case you can't remember, here's a quick refresher of what's happened so far. We started the season with Corey, the CEO of UBA, trying to sell the network to tech billionaire Paul Marks, and to send Alex to space in the process. Last minute, Bradley subs in for Alex, but hey, space.
1: After two years of the pandemic and... Now a war in Ukraine. It's incredible to look down and see how connected we all are. It's so tricky.
4: A cyber attack puts every email, text, and piece of confidential information about the network out in the open, and Paul Marks pulls out.
3: If they have medical records or subscriber data, we have to call the FBI.
5: Then you're looking at employee lawsuits. Class action. You know, every time that you start to speak, things feel like they're getting worse. That's a special gift.
4: Bradley worries her relationship with Laura is exposed. Meanwhile, a racist email from Sybil to the board puts her under the bright lights of the morning show.
3: You used a clumsy, racist comment to complain about my hiring. Did you think I wasn't qualified? Was that it? Well, in point of fact, at that time, I did not believe you were
4: qualified. And at Upfronts, UBA is tap dancing for advertisers and money to save the network. It's looking pretty grim until Alex turns up with billionaire Paul Marks. believable. Alex Levy brought home the kill.
1: So, Richard, uh, you are a morning show fan. Uh, well, yes,
4: I am. <laughs> Richard, you wow, are watching yeah. the morning yes. show. Damn, I, find it, true. I find it a really interesting show, <laughs> and as as our interview will will enlighten, um, there's a lot of there's so many moving parts to the show, and it's engaging like a sort of workplace sorkin-esque show you know tends to be this season i think has really ratcheted up things um you know as i mentioned in the synopsis um Reese Witherspoon does go to space. Yeah. I hope Naturally. that was actually filmed in space. Oh, now of course it's Apple. They yeah, have, yeah, they, they got have the money. money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they
1: probably have the ship. Mm.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those shows because they do a lot of recent news. It's kind of like the newsroom. Is it like did. the newsroom? Okay. Um, but it's less heavy-handed about that. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I'm always <laughs> that you know.
1: does that is perhaps faint praise. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just ever curious to see. Okay, like what are they going to bring in now? Like I think the last season. Ended with someone coughing.
3: Oh, so that's COVID. Well, yeah. I, I did hear that there was a COVID. Yeah, there yeah. was COVID, and, and so, then Trump is president too. Because she isn't there. An insurrect? Doesn't she go to the insurrection? That's
2: why I think that's in the trailer. We haven't <laughs> seen that yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but, I, but
4: they keep alluding to it in the early episodes of yes. this season. Like what happened when um, Bradley Jackson, played by Reese Witherspoon, covered. The, the the incident exactly. at the Capitol. That
1: is that is a good teaser. <laughs> yeah, I definitely yeah. want to know where yeah. Reese Witherspoon was <laughs> yeah. on well,
4: Exactly. I would I exactly. would like to know that. Um, um,
1: and John Hamm has joined the show this year yes, too.
4: Yes, he's playing the uh, the billionaire. Um, in a way that is, uh, I was I I mean, yes, John Hamm wouldn't really have done this, but like he's not doing a, like, ridiculous Elon or Richard Branson impression. He's playing it a little more suave, a little cooler, a little more of a decent person. Mm. Mm. Um, which so is... very unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Credulity. Um, but, you know, he joins a cast that is all really talented. We spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about Karen Pittman. Mm-hmm. Not enough time, though, because yeah. uh, her character on unjust Like That wasn't as big as That's we hoped. because she was too busy sending was... Reese yeah. with a spoon to space. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It takes a lot of time. So we've got her, we've got Nestor Carbonell, we've got Billy Crudup and Mark Duplass and all manner of other people. Um, oh, uh, Nicole Bahari joins this season. As Greta a, Lee. Yeah, Greta Lee her? is great mm-hmm. as a kind of executive who's in charge of kind of putting up PR fires. And um, yeah. So anyway, it's a really fun, engaging show. And I'm glad that we uh, were able to get this interview.
1: Yeah. Our Vanity Fair colleague, Savannah Walsh, got a chance to chat with Morning Show executive producer, Michael Ellenberg. She also spoke with consulting producer, Brian Stelter, a Vanity Fair contributor who also hosts our podcast, Inside the Hive which covers media, politics, and many of the themes in The Morning Show. Check it out.
3: And just so you know, this interview was done following the guidelines at the WGA and sag after strikes. Enjoy the conversation.
0: Well, thank you both so much for coming on, still watching, Michael and Brian. I appreciate it. And I'm excited to talk about the show with you both. I want to start off. The second season was delayed by and made about the early days of the pandemic. Season three jumps forward past any sort of shutdown. Why do the time jump? And what did it feel like returning to the series during a relatively more sane time?
5: Um. I'll do the second part first, which is much better. Returning during uh, to make things during a relatively sane time, um, the show has often had a degree of clairvoyance to it, both from pitch to writing and then f- filming. Season one, me too, happened after we sold the show, right? Season two, uh, the pandemic interrupt us literally. We had to go rebreak. So it was a relief while we, while we explored many topical, noisy. Complex events. None of them happen in real time. I shouldn't say that. Some of them did have unfold and accelerate in real time over the course of the season, uh, but none that required us to stop, every, you know, what we were doing and go back to the drawing board. Um, in terms of the time jump, you know, I think we we learned from season one um, was or from season one to season two. We want to follow a similar trajectory, which is the morning show wants to, you know, uh, we want to be able to lo- locate. Our story and characters in a moment of time that's as ripe as possible. We want to be in dialogue with what's happening in the world right now. Uh, our cast love it. I think the audience loves it. You know, so staying, you know, sort of beat by beat out of, you know, and and being through the details of COVID. The sort of point of season two was to land the, you know, an idea around what we're all do, what we're all so busy with that we couldn't pay attention to this slow moving car crash that was COVID, right? And then, end as it happened, and it was very intentional to sort of pick up where we are now. What's changed? What's different? And then look at the media landscape as it is right now, which is certainly evolving, as your world would say. And the speed of its evolution has obviously been uh, enhancing. So, so we just felt it was a really, the moment, in time we chose was really ripe to explore a range of themes, both politically, but frankly, you know, first and foremost for you know that would you know resonate the most with our characters.
0: It's actually insane how much the first four episodes cover in terms of terrain you know there's space travel um, the arrival of this billionaire tech mogul reproductive rights data leak was there a storyline in there that felt the most daunting to tackle
2: I don't think we can single out just one, but I loved how the the space launch in episode one came on screen. Like I, I love the way it came alive on screen, because when, when Charlotte Stout, who is this incredible producer, the showrunner now for season three and beyond, as, as, as Charlotte came in and talked about where can we take these characters, what can happen in this, this post-pandemic emergency world... And we we talked about Michael Strahan going into space live on Good Morning America, you know, to promote one of, I can't even remember which of the many rocket companies at this point, you know, that Strahan went on. But the point was that is morning television. That is the drama and excess and excitement and story and emotion of morning television. And of course, you know, on the morning show, we we do it in a different way, but using that as a little bit of inspiration, you know, talking to Charlotte and the writers about how that happened in real life, and, and then to actually see it brought to life um with uh, with the characters i just you know to me it was better than the real thing like you, you know what i mean Savannah. it was better than the version that happened on live tv because you feel like you're more a part of it you could feel like you were actually there uh, and then at the end of episode one to have jennifer aniston's character looking up and 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 having alex process you know this technical difficulty um i just i just love the way that came alive because that uh, don't they're setting that by in the, way the middle way. of you know west texas times- sure.
5: Uh, Brian, you broke up at the oh. very well-timed, almost as though you were doing a bit because that is us. when the signal broke up <laughs> in the show itself. Uh, yeah. Whoops! Just
2: to end the episode on Alex Levy looking up at the television, wondering if her former co-host has died. You know, there was there was just so much there, and you know, talk about daunting. You know, having that production out in the middle of the desert, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that that's certainly top of my list. And I would just say, you think about in this season, you have. Uh, references to the war in Ukraine, you know, the storyline about the war. You know, there are soldiers digging trenches like it's World War II. At the same time, you have these these billionaires launching into space. There's there's a lot there about the injustices and inequalities and craziness of our real world that I think this show is mirroring and amplifying. I'll,
5: and I'll add one more to that. The um, the top of episode four, uh, which you know, speaking of things that are changing, like up fronts, right? So that may sound boring to our podcast listenership out there, but they are, they were, and kind of still are, while they're alive, these amazing spectacles in New York, these uh, road shows uh, that the network's performed for decades, really, for uh, advertisers. And they were boozy boondoggles to make every program look like it's going to be the biggest hit of all time, even though the network always ended up canceling at least half, if not more, of the things they presented and sold. And we had to do all that uh, New York, giant theater, and uh, and spectacle in a day, basically. So we had <laughs> a pretty dazzling one take of Corey taking in his entire empire, almost all of our superstar cast. And it is a dazzling sequence um, that I think is really special. I think people will really enjoy
0: yeah, it was so wonderful to see Corey's, like, panned jokes that he's been written to tell, and just the whole performance of that was so fun to see.
2: Thanks, Retta.
5: Secretly, I've been de- dreading this. Thanks, Retta. Secretly. Hey, I've been secretly. Thanks, Retta. I've
2: been secretly dreading this. Um,
0: Reenacted, especially in a year where we're not getting up fronts in the traditional exactly, sense. Yeah. Um, and that's something I wanted to ask about, too. I feel like... Each time that The Morning Show comes out with a new season, there's sort of this debate over some people are drawn in by how timely it is. Other people are like, it's not timely enough or they, they have a hard time watching it because we just lived through whatever is being depicted. Where do you all fall on that? Obviously, you make the show, but how do you engage with that conversation when it comes around?
2: I think that that tug of war, that back and forth, that is what's happening in the industry for real every day. Different people taking different positions on what is happening to television, where the industry is going, you know, whether they take a more pessimistic view or a more optimistic view, whether they see more destruction or more creativity and more new new life in the industry. You know, and and we hear that in these episodes talking about UBA Plus. You know, I think there's a reference in episode 4 about like the incredible shrinking network. A lot of people at networks Feel like they're a part of an incredible shrinking network. Well, then isn't the challenge to figure out how to how to be a part of the solution to that? How to how to be a part of the resistance to that? And I got to admit, like I get pretty inspired sometimes by the dialogue that Charlotte and the writers have come up with to to portray where the industry might be going and where we all might find ourselves being.
5: Yeah, I, I think part of the way we think about Savannah is. Is an issue truly resolved or not, right? I think because we you know, the what you try to do as a producer is put obviously the most to the greatest extent possible, put yourself in the eyes of the audience, right? Which is you want something that's juicy and electric and brings you into a moment in time that you could see anew. But I think also if there's if you know we try to avoid having neat and tidy things to say. And you know, so to the degree, you know, these are live issues. What Brian just spoke about, the the state of uh, both uh, broadcast media, cable media, all of it, right? It couldn't be more in flux. Um, there is no resolution to our, you know, our the political tensions in America right now. Roe v. Wade remains hotly contested, as is Dobbs. You know, most of the big social issues we tackle um, are just part of what we're all talking about, you know. And if you're going to capture also the texture of this world, that's what the characters inherently are dealing with, right? And so. What we do, I think, in, quite intentionally want to avoid is we're not like, trying to be soothsayers, right? So things often do happen that we talk about in real life. And sometimes you think you're so brilliant. And then, you know, Elon Musk bought Twitter while the thing was happening, right? Like, we were like, so sometimes you're so smart, you're not smart enough, right? Which is, um, that was happening in, like, we were, had start I can't remember if we were either just but we were filming already. And so you're like, okay, at least we're on topic, you know? yeah you know, but whereas but we don't want to either have you know sort of this or we, we want to be able to touch enough of reality so you're never like, oh they're just guessing at some fake future or they're giving us a tidy moral lesson from the past you
0: know? that's really fascinating. I think the introduction of Paul Marx, our tech billionaire um who is potentially going to be involved with u b a s future speaks to that a lot um a lot of people have noted similarities to real life billionaires that the character has, from the mention of Sun Valley to what some have noted as a very phallic looking rocket. Um, <laughs> who helped inspire that character, and why was John Hamm the only choice to play it?
5: The inspiration is kind of is these people exist. Obviously, there's the tech version, you know. So, which is you know, living in Los Angeles, anyone working in media today, the. Um, not just the influence, but right, but the invasion of tech to our world has been massive and just well documented. So that felt right. But we're also in the era of, yeah, the billionaire entrepreneur that believes they can in- innovate and in, uh, not only in their home area of expertise, but they can do everything else better too. And so, as a subject, I, I actually think there's almost too many people to choose from in terms of influence. And then, Ham. John, obviously, first and foremost, a great actor, but we were interested in the Mad Men stuff, you know? So, you know, he presents, he knows how his, John's charming, obviously, incredibly handsome kind of uh, embodiment of a certain kind of American industry leader, right? At the same time, he's able to put a smile and make something feel presentable and acceptable that may be wildly insidious. And we wanted that. We wanted someone we were really drawn to, in a weird way, it's, it is. There's a relevance to the Corral with Mitch Kessler, which was we wanted with with Steve Corral. We wanted the audience to feel he's the dad next door, he's the uncle they wish they had, he's maybe the rascal they like uh, had beer with, and so so you could connect with him. And similarly here, we didn't want. There's been plenty of portrayals of let's say extreme and unreliable tech people and there there's a lot of great depictions of them and many things we love and are inspired by but we wanted we were quite intentional about wanting we didn't want the show to get hung up on let's say the stylistic quirks of a lot of the people you'll meet in tech on television and rather have someone very accessible very compelling and someone you'd want to say yes to. You know, and so John, um, you never quite know where he stands. And he's someone, yeah, you want to get in, in bed with maybe literally and figuratively. And then, you know, he's an exceptional actor. And We wanted also for the first time, Billy and Billy, obviously he goes toe to toe with all these great actors on the show. But we want Corey to finally have someone. He's always fi- been five steps ahead of everyone in the show, by and large. And we <laughs> We were drawn to the idea of having someone, maybe for the first time, he's a couple of clicks behind, mm-hmm. and and who could really be formidable, kind of in stature and in presence. And so John and Billy, they know each other, but the that dynamic was as important to us as Paul's dynamic with Alex. And so, uh, from, you know, those are just that's a lot actually on why he was great, but um, um, really John embodied those those traits in a way almost no other actor could. It's important for the world of The Morning Show, right, to to have Hyperion
2: exist and to have Paul Marx and to have to wrestle with this and have to think about where where is the power? where Where is the power now? I was There was a piece about Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk book by Sean McCreish the other day in, in New York Mag that said there was a world decades ago of magazine editors and TV anchors and, you know, there were emperors in that room. But that room is gone now. And now the new room is Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Tim Cook, you know, and, and that's... That is a dilemma that, you know, is faced by The Morning Show and faced by the entire network. And, you know, it's why UBA Plus exists. You know, this entire takeover by tech drives the story. So it's it's obvious Paul Marx is a composite. He's not Elon. He's not any of these single billionaires. He's a composite. But it, it reflects something very real that's happening in the media industry.
1: Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment when we return more with The Morning Show's Brian Stelter and Michael Ellenberg.
3: Make sure you're following Dinner S.O.S. wherever you're listening now.
0: Something I wanted to ask you about, Brian, is at the beginning of the season, Alex and Bradley are a united front, partially due to the fact that they both have grievances with the network that they work at. Uh, Alex wants more of a seat at the table. Bradley is resisting this request that she drop a story about abortion to remain impartial during the election. It often makes headlines when anchors don't align with each other when they're sparring. But do alliances like Alex and Bradley's at the beginning of the season work in negotiating power at a network?
2: I think they certainly do at times. Uh, there have been times in in real morning show history where uh, the you know the ensemble was so united, it was united front. You could not divide them. You know they were actually real life friends off camera, and in those moments, which are usually few and far between, the network has less power. The stars have more power. You know, it creates a, a, a interesting dynamic. Um, more often, I would say, in, in this business, uh, in, in television news, there is a lack of that alignment, uh, want different things at different times, and, and that maybe gives the networks more power. But certainly, that in alignment or out-of-alignment is important to mine and explore. Also, here in season three, to have, you know, to, to again, widen the world, to have the evening news, to have, to have Bradley anchoring the evening news, it just lets us see even more of this world and even more of the dynamics that are at play.
0: And as ever, there's been a lot of broadcast cable news drama since the last season of The Morning Show came out. There's the ouster of major figures at CNN, at Fox News, Good Morning America. How much does that, um, I don't want to say expendability, but just we've seen so many major figures leave in the last few seasons, which feels like something that could be happening on The Morning Show. How much of the show is reflective of that current media landscape?
5: A lot, and I think more so as it goes forward, right? I think that's, uh, we, you know, uh, there's a strike, speaking of ch- ever-changing landscape, so we don't really know what the next season will be. But, you know, in the first season, there was a great scene the very in the pilot, I should say, between Corey and Chip, Mark Duplass and Billy Crubb's character. And Corey gives a big speech about, this world's gonna have to reinvent itself soon or they're all gonna be bought out by tech and really the speech was kind of like are we at the end of something and so this year you're starting to see that reality come to bear which is this kind of last bastion of stability and profitability in the broadcast television world the shows remain wildly important to them nonetheless the, the the edifice around them is literally collapsing ABC is in play I mean that's uh, obviously, an unimaginable event, and I think one of the things we posit when the show began was that the morning shows might be the last man standing, um, you know. And we seem to be somewhat correct about that thus far. So, yeah, I think it's um, in the the energy of um, are they still relevant? You know, I think it's going to become more and more a theme that we explore as the show goes on. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things I feel like The Morning Show does so well is peel back the layers of toxicity that that live within this workplace. You know, each time you feel like you've uncovered another layer, there's more underneath. A lot of that's exposed with the data hack that happens at the end of the second episode. Anything could be revealed with a leak like that, and it it really opens up the show. How did you decide what dirt gets unearthed?
5: Right. Well, because you did some of the research on this. We were all um looking— well, I mean, we're it's it's yeah you know, we're storytellers first, right? So whatever's juiciest is the answer, right? Right. Um, but we love the idea in a world, you know, in a, in a period of social change where people are looking for their work lives to reflect their personal values in a way that maybe they never really have before. We were particularly drawn to things like HR. In episode three, uh, the pay inequity really comes to bear, and so you know, this shows so much about exploring. The difference between the public face we have and our private selves right and so in essence the hack is the ultimate version of this which is the the network has a public face which is noble and uplifting and has learned the lessons of me too and racial inequity and internalized all these lessons and then the hack is the inner truth that gets built <laughs> and i think it's a big question we're all you know. I think everyone in America is wondering, you know, how much has really changed in the last three or four years and how much is the same. Mm-hmm. I think the, the hack gets underneath something that we're all wondering about, and it's just absolute pandemonium, right? And, <laughs> um, and then the all, yeah, you know, I think for all, yeah, the so, so that, so, so it's, you know, what did your colleagues say about each other? What's the secret text? What's personal on your device? The amount people mess up and sh- and share personal comments about each other, right? On official form, in your email, in your text at your office, might. You kind of know, could see, but don't really care about. So it's kind of, you know, it's the death of privacy and, and you'll see many pieces of it ripple through the season.
2: And we had already conceived of this and you know the scenes had already been shot in large part before the Dominion filings in the Fox News lawsuit. Oh, no. But think about that from last now spring. Came I about again. To say. You know, in February and March, Dominion released all of those emails and text messages from inside Fox News where very vividly. You see how people feel about each other. You see people insulting each other. You see the backstabbing happening in real time in these text messages and emails. You know, so a hack is one way, as we saw with Sony nearly a decade ago. (laughs) A really devastating lawsuit is another way. But This happens, you know, Mm -hmm. I I know that, you know, firsthand that the Fox Dominion case has changed the way that I communicate with sources at Fox. They are terrified to text message now. Uh, I have to pick up the phone, Mm -hmm. you know, and so there's a version of that all throughout media, I think. As a a result of Sony, as a result of Dominion, et cetera, et cetera.
0: It's fascinating because, I mean, the most damning result of the hack within the show is discovering that Sybil, a UBA board member, sends a racist email about Chris, the morning show's newest anchor, Corey, the network president, discourages Chris from pursuing legal action by saying we should do the news, not be the news. How often is a tactic like this still being deployed and silencing employees about workplace misconduct when something like this happens?
5: Obviously, we're not. I mean, I shouldn't say we. I am not a journalist. Brian is a journalist. Um, so but you can only speak from kind of anecdotal uh, sense of what goes on in the workplace. Um and I'm not putting you on the spot Savannah, uh, about Vanity Fair, but the uh, our assumption is as present as ever, right? Which is you have, and maybe that's why we're drawn to the idea, and not just to be jerks. I mean, not just work is work, you know what I mean? And people are trying to balance um, what's, what's appropriate to show up in public or not, right? So it's hard hearing Corey say those things, But there's a truth in it, right? There's a truth in it for Chris, and Chris really does have to reckon with, which is, and she reckons with that all season. How far do I want to take this? How much do I want this to define me? And how much do I want to just go forward, right? And there aren't easy answers to that, right? You know, we can say there are, but then there are the people who live it and go through it. So there's both the kind of corporate villainous aspect of it, which is, finding ways to force things and keep them under the rug and keep them from coming to light. But then there's the flip side for those who are in it, which is how much do they want to bear in it? And, and I think we're still, as a side, figuring that out. What's, you know, we want, you know, what, we want radical transparency. It seems like we still would like a little privacy. Right. And what's the balance between them? I don't think we know really what we want yet. And, and the show, yeah, it was very interesting just living in kind of the tension and drama of that.
0: Um, this has been such a great conversation. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, you know, the show obviously deals with such topical issues. It's already been greenlit for a fourth season. We're living in the strikes in Hollywood, the topic of streaming revenue. What are the chances that that'll be woven into the next season?
5: Uh, Charlotte Stout, you know, as per, as per the strikes, right, you're talking to, to uh, producers on the show right now, not to the writer uh, writer of it. Um so hard to say what exactly will come, um, but as as we've been discussing, the show wants to engage with what is most top of mind. God will, by definition. I shouldn't say God willing. By definition, once we get back to work, it means the strikes are over. So it will be somewhat in the past. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we are. It feels like we're in some endgame moment right now, where the future players are cementing themselves. The legacy players are in the real moment of figuring out what their place is going to be going forward. And our morning show pillar of, st- of in- well, a former pillar of stability, now a pillar of instability is in inherently, you know, it's it's a world that will be in can remain in the crosshairs of all of these challenges. So I'm sure we'll be picking up at if not in the middle of it in an experiential way, certainly the questions being asked and, and battled over right now for sure will be our season.
2: The only through line is the morning show part, meaning every day, 7 a.m. Eastern time, there's got to be something on the air for as long as we're going to have broadcast television, <laughs> right, Ellenberg? For as long as we're going to have this medium, there's got to be a host in the chair to tell you what happened last night. And that is like the only the only thing we know for sure in this ever-evolving world.
0: The only constant is that there is no constant (laughs) other than the morning (laughs) show. (laughs) Well, Delving Into the Season has been so delicious in so many ways. I really appreciate both of your perspectives on it, and thanks for taking the time.
2: (laughs) Thank you.
4: That does it for this episode of Still Watching. Please, as ever, send us any questions, concerns, feelings of injustice to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ryla's And you can find me at christress
3: That
1: was like a lot of buildup.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say.
1: <laughs> Where can you find me? <laughs> and you can find me at Hillabuster with two Rs. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Gabe Quiroga. Steven Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. Looking forward to seeing you then.
3: You come to the New Yorker Radio
2: Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.